You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. Everybody, my name is Tim Lorden. I'm the Executive Director of the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee. Thanks for coming. Um, today is FISA Friday, and that's actually our hashtag on Twitter for this event. So if you want to follow and, and uh, look for the video and audio afterwards, it's FISA Friday is the hashtag. Um, this event is called Balancing National Security and Privacy, What Will Congress Do About FISA's 702? So as you can, you can see, um, the, the topic today is how do we uh, do balance uh, privacy while also maintaining law enforcement uh, surveillance powers and, and making Americans safe. Um, we host these events for the past 20 years in conjunction with the Congressional Internet, Internet Caucus, uh, the co-chairs of which um, in the House side here are Chairman Bob Goodlatte and Congresswoman Anna Eshoo. On the Senate side, the chairman of the Congressional Internet Caucus are Senator uh, John Thune and uh, Senator Patrick Leahy. Um, and then there's other, like uh, several hundred other members of the Congressional Internet Caucus. And the idea is that we host these briefings that have you know, different perspectives on the issue. Uh, so you can hear you know, a lot of different sides on, on any given issue, whether it be uh, national security and privacy, or whether it be net neutrality or copyright reform. So um, that's, that's the goal for today is to give you a variety of different perspectives. Um, um, I think what I'd like to do is just introduce quickly um, uh, the, the panelists, just go really quickly. Um, at the very end, it's Michelle, Rob, Michelle Richardson, who is with the Center for Democracy and Technology, a privacy and civil liberties group here in Washington, D.C. Uh, next to her is Stuart Evidence, who is the Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division at the U.S. Department of Justice. Um, next to him is Adam Klein, who is with the Center for a New American Security. And, and next to me here is um, uh, Liza uh, Goitin, if I pronounce that correctly. Liza Goitin. Oh, I, I got the Goitin right, but the Liza wrong. So Liza Goitin um, uh, with um, the Brennan Center for Justice. Um, their Twitter hashtags um, or Twitter, Twitter handles are on this um, on the sheet that you have in front of you. And so you can contact them via Twitter or after the fact. I'm sure you can get their business card. Um, today, we're going to talk about um, 702 FISA uh, Surveillance Authority, which expires. It's the, the 702 Surveillance Authority under the um, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act um, that was created in 1978. Um, there is a provision that was created later, 702, that expires. It will sunset um, if Congress does not act to reauthorize it or reform it. Um, in, and that will happen in December 31st um, of this year. And basically what it means for congressional staff is that your bosses have about, on the House side, you have about 59, by my count, 59 legislative days to actually um, do something about the statute before this law enforcement power um, expires. Um, on the Senate side, probably about 79 days, I guess, with the new uh, canceling of August recess vacation. So um, there, the clock is certainly ticking on this, and Congress will have to act. And, and that's, this, is some, this is not some esoteric policy question. Um, this is a, a key provision of surveillance powers that will expire unless Congress acts within a certain number of legislative days. So let, let's start basically with trying to figure out, just to give an overview, what is um, the kind of 702 FISA um, surveillance powers and uh, how does it work and, and what does it do? Um, and what I'd like to do is Stuart probably gives his speech, this elevator speech that he's condensed down to like three minutes every day for the past like three months and he'll probably have to do it for the next three months. So maybe Stuart, if you can give us your kind of elevator speech on what it is and what Sure, Tim. That, that's great. First, uh, thank you for hosting this event, and, and thanks to all of you for, for coming. Um, 
as I think we've seen in a number of public statements and testimony over the last several months from the most senior levels of the intelligence community, the Director of National Intelligence, the FBI Director, the Deputy Attorney General, Section 702 is an absolutely vital intelligence collection program and is the, the reauthorization before the end of the year is the intelligence community's number one legislative priority. So we very much appreciate all of you coming and focusing on this issue and, and Tim, for you all hosting this event. Um, that said, let me give a brief background. I could probably spend a full hour uh, giving the background of the program, but uh, I think my other panelists would be frustrated by that, so I will uh, try to condense it down to, to something very short. And to understand what Section 702 is, you have to look back to the original Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. So when Congress was debating the passage of FISA originally in the 1970s, it considered the question of whether you should be required to get an individualized probable cause-based court order to conduct surveillance of people here in the United States or people overseas. And at the time, Congress decided to pass a regime that focused on people inside the United States and said if, if the U.S. government is going to be conducting national security surveillance of people located inside the United States, it should be required to get an individualized probable cause based order. But Congress expressly decided not to legislate with respect to surveillance directed at foreigners abroad. And the reason for that, effectively, in a nutshell, is that foreigners abroad are not protected by the, the Fourth Amendment the way people inside of America are. The problem, though, is that the way Congress accomplished this distinction was by drafting definitions of electronic surveillance that were rooted in the technology at the time, so that the way technology existed in the 70s and the way surveillance was conducted in the 70s, the forms of surveillance directed at foreigners abroad generally did not require an individualized probable cause-based court order. Fast forward to the mid-2000s, there were obviously significant changes in technology, the primary one of which was that by the mid-2000s, you had billions of people located abroad who were using U.S.-based communication services, U.S.-based email providers, things like that, that didn't exist in the 1970s. And if the government wanted to collect those communications of foreigners abroad, of a company here inside the United States, it was required by those definitions of electronic surveillance to go get an individualized probable cause-based order. So we were basically extending Fourth Amendment procedures and Fourth Amendment protections to foreigners overseas who weren't entitled to them. And it was creating all sorts of um, intelligence collection failures as well. Probable cause is a very high standard to meet. It's very difficult to meet. It's very difficult to draft a warrant application, submit it to the judge. And it's just not feasible in a lot of cases when you're dealing with people in the remote corners of the, the world and the globe who we know very little about. And so that's what Congress was trying to get at in 2008 when it passed Section 702, restoring a little bit of the balance of original FISA and creating a regime where the intelligence community could have access inside the United States with the assistance of companies to the communications of national security uh, targets abroad without having to get an individualized court order. And so it created a different regime under Section 702 where the Attorney General and the Director of National Intelligence can execute certifications uh, describing foreign intelligence information that can be collected. And those sort of certifications are supported by implementing procedures that ensure that the surveillance is directed only at foreigners located abroad. So if we have an American who is of a national security interest and we actually want to conduct surveillance of that American, we have to go to a judge and get a, a probable cause-based court order. But when we have foreign targets located abroad, that's what Section 702 is for. And, and so that's the regime that Congress has created. 
and it's subject to rigorous oversight from all three branches of, of government. There's oversight from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and, and I won't go into a, a lot of uh, background here, but I'm happy to take questions uh, on that. It's subject to oversight by the Justice Department. It's subject to oversight by uh, the Congress with extensive reporting, and it's also subject to oversight by outside groups like the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. And through all of that, we've never found an intentional violation of the program. And as Tim said, this program is up for reauthorization at the end of the year, and uh, again, Congress will have to make some sort of choice by the end of the year as to what to do about it. So this is, um, these requests are made to the FISA court, and there are actual judges there, and it's made by the Director of National Intelligence at, along with the Department of Justice? So, so the way the program works, these certifications, which are approved by the Attorney General and the Director of National Intelligence jointly, are supported by documents. There are, I won't go into detail on them, but there are two sets of documents effectively. There are targeting procedures and there are minimization procedures. And those documents are packaged up once a year and submitted to the FISA court for review. And the FISA court has to review those documents in their totality and conclude that they are both consistent with all the limitations of the statute and that they're consistent with the requirements of the Fourth Amendment. And once the court makes that finding, then the intelligence community can effect collection under this program for the, the upcoming one-year period before needing to go back to the court for further review. Okay, and you, and you mentioned maybe um, Adam or somebody can in, uh, jump in on this. Uh, um, you had mentioned the standard is not probable cause um, to get one of these. It's, um, it, has to be the, it has to be the significant purpose of which has to be foreign intelligence. So it's lower than, you know, sometimes in criminal statutes we talk about probable cause, relevant to an ongoing investigation, things like that. This is not that same standard. That's right. Because these are foreigners overseas, it is not a probable cause standard. But there has to be a foreign intelligence reason for doing the collection. And in fact, for every particular individual target that is placed under surveillance under this program, there has to be a reasonable belief that that person is likely to communicate or possess the type of foreign intelligence information that we're looking for. So, so that's the standard here. So, and you had mentioned that um, because U U.S. companies, we're, we're really blessed to have uh, a U.S. In internet industry and telecommunications industry that is that covers the globe. I mean, U.S.-based internet companies, U.S.-based telecom companies um, have basically they a lot of communications, uh, vast majority of which are kind of routed through the United States, whether it be telecommunications or internet traffic, um, and that's why you know this this order exists only for companies with here in the U.S. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's the big shift that happened from the 1970s to now that, that required this sort of modification of the statute. So, so in a sense, like from a law enforcement perspective, you're really lucky that all these companies are doing so well here in the United States. We are. I mean, they, these companies have great products, great services. They're great companies, and they're used by people all over the world. And that gives us, from a national security perspective, a little bit of an advantage from, from other countries around the world. Okay, what type of data, and anybody can jump in here, what type of, like, just really quickly, what type of data are we talking about? Is telecommunications data? and there's internet data. What, what, what are we talking about, Snapchats or? I think maybe it would be helpful just to give the audience a bit of the very concrete sense of what type of stuff we're talking about here. And this is all from the public report of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. This report, more than 100 pages of detail about how this program works, which came out in 2014. So there are two ways the government can get after a foreign target under this program. Let's say that it's a ISIS member in Syria and his email address is jihadijohn at mail.net. The government knows that this is a non-US person. 
that he's overseas because we have intelligence that he's in Syria, and we have a very good reason to believe he's going to communicate foreign intelligence because he's a known member of a terrorist group. So the, the NSA can then task that email address, jihadijohn.mail.net, under the program. And that allows them to, go, to do two things. We're assuming that mail.net is a U.S. company, so he can go to that company, the government can go to that company, and get all of the account information from that company, and the company will have to provide it. The government can also filter messages to or from jihadijohn.mail.net as those messages pass along internet cables that are in the United States. And this is all in this public report. So that's basically what the government is doing under this program. And it doesn't have to go to a judge and get an individualized order to target that person. That's the key difference from the old through traditional FISA of 1978 for people in the United States. Uh, so that makes it a lot easier to target people like this terrorist in Yemen or a foreign spy or some other person of intelligence interest who's overseas. And so this has proved, according to this public report and other reports from the intelligence community, to be a bonanza for obvious reasons, right? Think about all the stuff that's in your Gmail account and now apply that to a terrorist. It's enabled the government to learn about how terrorist groups work, who terrorists talk to, whether they're talking to people in the United States, which is a pretty scary thing. Uh, so that's, that's all been a very good thing for foreign intelligence collection. Of course, any program that collects large volumes of data from the internet is going to have some incidental consequences for privacy. Uh, and those are significant and we shouldn't trivialize them and I'm sure my colleagues will be happy to talk about those okay. later. We'll get to, we'll get to um, incidental in a second. Um, you, you mentioned that it was, these are targeted requests. Um, it, you know, and they're, they're programs like PRISM. So try to, let's try to distinguish between targeted and this, is this bulk collection which we had heard of before? So, so this is absolutely not bulk collection. Every individual email address, every individual phone number, a selector that is placed under surveillance under this program has to be individually reviewed and individually assessed to believe to, as, as believed to be used by a foreign person located abroad who is reasonably expected to communicate or possess foreign intelligence information. Liza, if I could just... No, no not, not by the court, because, because those foreigners abroad, yeah, because those foreigners abroad don't have Fourth Amendment rights. And so those, those decisions are then written down, they're reviewed internally at the agencies to ensure that they were made appropriately by analysts. They're then audited by the Department of Justice and, and the Director of National Intelligence. And if any errors are found in that process, those errors are reported both to the court and to Congress. Okay, I have one more question before we get to kind of like more, get deeper into this. Um, the question about, you know, one of the questions about whenever you give a law enforcement surveillance power um, to the U.S. government, you want to make sure that the program that you're giving it to is effective for the purpose, you know, that, I mean, because that's what we're here for, is a balancing privacy with national security. So on the national security side, we want to make sure that, is this thing working? And I think, you know, a lot of people have looked at different, different surveillance powers, um, not just 702, but also the Patriot Act. Um, and come to different conclusions. Is, is this program effective at um, countering terrorism, thwarting crime, uh, prosecuting crimes, and finding leads? And, uh, any, and Stuart, you can answer, but everybody can feel we're free to jump in on this one. I'll just say very briefly, and then I, I think Adam might have comments that he wants to make on this, but, but from the government's perspective, it is absolutely vital and critical national security tool, and that's just not our view. Outside uh, entities that have looked at it have reached that same conclusion, and, and I know Adam has studied those uh, outside reports extensively. And Tim, um, you know, I think the way you should think about this is not whether the program ever catches terrorists, right? It's been up for 10 years. It's incredible authority. Um, any spying authority this broad will catch wrongdoing, right? The question is, is, is it scoped in a way to minimize 
the incidental damage to especially Americans' privacy. And that's where the types of proposals that come out of Liza and Mines organizations try to rein it in. And we were originally told that the point of the program was to listen to terrorists abroad. Um, and not with a warrant, but um, with a general procedure. And so there are a lot of changes you could make that leave that core system in place, but would minimize the chance for collecting information that violates people's privacy. So for example, we talked a little bit about the scope of the program and how there are targets. So we know from new reporting that last year there's um, a little over 100,000 targets, right? These selectors go into the machines that they surveil. Um, we know it's things like emails and phone numbers. However, we don't know if it includes other technology that does um, represent information on a lot of people. For example, is it an IP address? So are they tracking the number of people who visit a specific website? Um, is it a switch or something in the internet infrastructure that would return information on a lot of people? And that's something we don't know yet, but um, it's very possible and possibly being used to collect information right now. And I want to jump in and, is this on? Is this on? Um, yeah, so, so I think I want, to, I want to explain what Section 702 did a little bit differently. Section 702 made two sea changes in the law. And the first one was to eliminate the requirement of an individualized court order when the government obtains communications between a foreign target and an American. Uh, Mr. Evans uh, said that even though the statute actually required an order for those situations, that was an accident of the way it was written, that the technology of the times in 1978 would not have required a warrant for this. That's actually not the case. Uh, the former head of the National Security Division, David Chris, did a close study of communication systems at the time FISA was implemented. And a quarter, and anywhere between a third to a half of communications of foreign targets at the time would have required a warrant under FISA as it was written. Uh, the other communications, there was a carve out for those in the statute. That's why it used uh, communications technology as a proxy instead of just saying straightforward who, who would be targeted. Um, there was a carve out for a particular NSA program that Congress intended to get to later, and there's plenty of evidence in the legislative history, including a statement by Congress that any, any of those authorities on the part of the NSA left untouched were not uh, a sign that Congress meant to authorize them. So I know that's all very complicated, but it, the, the point to take home is that there was a warrant requirement when the government wiretapped communications between foreign targets and people inside the US before Section 702, and now there isn't one. The other major change is that before Section 702, uh, the target of surveillance had to be a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power. And these terms are defined quite broadly to include terrorists, international terrorists, as well as political organizations, companies under government influence, very broad definition. But there had to be probable cause that that's uh, okay. who they, let me, can I, 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 we, yes, you can finish the sentence. And, the, and now the target can be any foreigner overseas. And no, not just the, the absence of a probable cause requirement or a court finding, but the scope can be any foreigner overseas. Okay, so we, we just really quickly, we, jump, we leapfrog from efficacy of the program 
to uh, scope of the program and into um, incidental collection or collection of U.S. citizens, which I wanted to get to, you know, in, in turn. But um, uh, Liza, Liza, you're making the point that um, it, the way that Stewart described it in the legislative history um, was it wasn't it's quite uh, the legislative history shows that it was actually they probably they maybe wanted to have a warrant specific and that it had to be a foreign power. Um, and you're just quibbling, you're, you're disputing uh, Stewart's historical context of when he laid it all out. So, so, so Tim, uh, if I could briefly, and I don't think we want to belabor this point here because we do want to have a, a discussion about this, but you know, I, I think we just will agree to disagree on this for purposes of today's panel. I, I think we disagree with Liza's characterization of the legislative history. Um, well, I will say David's a very good friend of mine. Uh, I worked for him for a number of years as well. I've read the documents you're talking about, and I also think those are being mischaracterized, but we'll just move on from that for now. Um, second point I would just wanted to make on, on that is, while it's true that traditional FISA from 1978 required an agent of a foreign power finding, that again is because it was directed at people who had Fourth Amendment rights, and the agent of a foreign power finding, which is a very high threshold, was designed to satisfy those Fourth Amendment requirements. When you're looking at foreigners overseas, there is no legal reason to require an agent of a foreign power finding. It's the second point I wanted to make. And, and the third point, just to move on quickly, is any random foreigner cannot be subject to surveillance under Section 702. As I've said before, any foreigner overseas has to be assessed to be reasonably likely to communicate or possess foreign intelligence information. There are seven and a half billion people in the world. There are only 100,000 foreigners under surveillance under Section 702. I'm not a mathematician, but that's something less than 0.0001% of, of the world's population. So the assumption that, that millions and millions of people are under surveillance under this program overseas for no reason just isn't borne out by the facts. Okay, um, unless anybody wants to go back to the efficacy of the program, um, we, we feel free to, but I, I, let's just move on because I think um, what I did want to ask was, you know, is under this program, uh, under what circumstances, and I think the, what um, Michelle was getting at was under this program, are there any instances where uh, U.S. persons, and it's supposed to cover non-U.S. persons, are there any instances where U.S. persons are actually swept up in these communications? If so, um, how does that happen and what is done about it? And that's getting to Michelle's privacy uh, balancing concern. Yeah, and um, you know, the administration has been clear when, when they're targeting the foreigners overseas, the calls and emails that land in the U.S. are the ones that are especially interesting, right? And um, so as they sweep this up, you're going to get a number of communications where an American is on the other end. So we do end up in the final take, the database, right? And so the question is, is after the targeting happens, after they collect the information, what are the rules for how the government could actually access and use that? Um, sometimes these ideas are kind of meshed together, but there are two separate rules, right? The targeting of what they get, that's the foreigners overseas. But once it's in the databases at NSA or FBI, it's a whole other set of rules that are much more lax that allow them to search for information that belongs to a U.S. person without a warrant or necessarily a um, finding of wrongdoing whatsoever. And that is um, one of the things that's been such subject to debate.
And I agree with uh, Michelle's basic answer to your question, which is yes, uh, absolutely, information about Americans is going to be collected. And that's true of any surveillance authority. The reason you surveil someone is because you want to find out who that person is talking to and what they're saying. Uh, and so, for example, if the FBI and the Justice Department get a warrant to wiretap Tony Soprano in New Jersey, they're going to pick up not just other mobsters, but they're going to pick up the pizza boy and Tony Soprano's wife and various other people, the gardener, who may, by the way, be burying a bag of cash in the backyard. Right? This is the point of surveillance. You learn about the person's pattern of life. You learn who they're conspiring with and what they're doing. And sometimes you do get innocent people, but you also find people of interest you weren't aware of before. Uh, so yes, Americans are going to be collected. That's a foreseeable consequence of this. On the one hand, that can be some of the most valuable intelligence. So just to take one example, the government under 702, and this is a published example, was, was collecting the email of an of a Al Qaeda courier in Pakistan. And it found that someone in the United States was communicating with that Al Qaeda courier, and in fact was asking for advice about how to make explosives. That's a red alert situation. So immediately, the FBI investigated that person in Colorado, found out that it was a person named Najibul Azazi, and learned that he and his friends had imminent plans to bomb the New York subway. And the plot was disrupted, and potentially hundreds of lives were saved. So that's one way to illustrate that information about Americans can be collected legitimately and is valuable intelligence under the program. On the other hand, many, if not most, Americans whose information is going to be incidentally pulled in by this type of surveillance might be innocent, might have nothing to do with any type of intelligence concern. And so we want to make sure that that information is protected, and that's a key subject of debate about the reauthorization of this program. It's a legitimate privacy concern. We can talk about whether the rules in place are good enough, whether we should do more to protect that information and limit how the government uses it, including in criminal court, by the way. Uh, but I think it's important to have a balanced view of this issue of when Americans get caught up in these programs. So there's, there's actually two important differences between the incidental collection of Americans' data and uh, under 702 and what happens when Tony Soprano is being wiretapped. First of all, when Tony Soprano is being wiretapped, there's a warrant out at the outset. And that warrant provides a tremendous amount of vicarious protection to anybody who may be in contact with the person. Because obviously, if the government could wiretap anyone in this country, uh, any, you know, just as they can wiretap pretty much any foreigner overseas under Section 702, they would pull in a lot of innocent communications. That's the scope of innocent collection is much, much narrower when you have a warrant for the target. So that's the first difference. The second difference is the government isn't actually allowed to knowingly record the conversations between Tony Soprano and the pizza boy. The minimization requirements for criminal wiretaps require the government to try to not collect communications of innocent persons. And that means in real time, they're supposed to stop recording when there's a conversation with a pizza boy. Um, also, the back end, of course, they're accidentally, they don't know in advance when the conversation starts. So of course, they're going to end up collecting a lot of innocent conversations anyway. But then the back end requirements for getting rid of those communications are much stricter in the context of criminal wiretaps than they are in the context of 702, where that information can actually be searched for specifically to, to use in criminal proceedings. So, so I, I think this is actually a very good discussion. Uh, and I, I would just add, I agree actually very much with Michelle's characterization of it. I, I disagree that the procedures are lax. But aside from that, I, I actually think that was a very good lay down and, and agree with Adam's characterization as well. As to Liza's last couple of points, Sure, of course, when you're surveilling Tony Soprano in New Jersey, you need to get a warrant. That's for a couple different reasons. First off, he's an American inside the United States, so he's protected by the Fourth Amendment. 
Secondly, surveillance of Tony Soprano in New York or New Jersey is far more likely to produce conversations with the innocent pizza man or the innocent school teacher down the street. Surveillance of a terrorist in Syria is far less likely to produce that. Common sense just tells us that. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is the rules between criminal procedure, criminal search warrants, criminal wiretaps, and national security wiretaps, even domestically, have always been different. And that's because Congress and every federal court that's looked at it has recognized that in the national security space, there are different considerations, there are different concerns, and so there's a different set of rules that are, that are appropriate in, in that context. And I don't disagree with anything that Stuart just said. I, my point was simply responding to Adam, who was saying it's just the same as wiretapping. Well, and you know, I would point people to um, the DNI's document from April of this year. It's called the FISA Amendments Act Q&A, right? And so this has the um, five publicly released examples of how 702 has worked. One of them is the Zazi case, but this is a good example where this is a totally unobjectionable use of 702, right? But the statute is much broader than what's allowed in the Zazi case. So if you are wiretapping a terrorist overseas, and you hear them speaking to someone in the U.S. saying, I gotta figure out how to build this bomb right now, you've actually triggered a lot of different authorities in the United States to get the email, the phone calls. It's an emergency situation, you don't need a warrant. You go directly to the provider and say, I need the records, I need the content. And all these companies are legally allowed to turn over the data. So as mentioned in here, the Zazi case, you know, it wasn't even about querying 702. They just skipped over that and said, provider, here's a national security letter, give me all the information you have on this guy. And that's appropriate, right? When you're at a point where you have that sort of factual background, you can go ahead and up the investigation. The question, though, is when the authority is much, much broader than that, how is it being used in other cases, right? Because um, it's not just about terrorists or foreign governments, which are the more, um, you know, permissible reasons to do this sort of warrantless surveillance, but the more generic catch-alls in the statute, right? They're allowed to conduct surveillance for national defense and foreign affairs of the United States, which are incredibly broad topics. For example, um, the Department of Defense says um, the theft of intellectual property is a defense issue, right? Global warming, anything that pretty much affects the U.S. standing in the world. And if those are the basis for some of the surveillance, um, that's much more problematic, not just the Zazi case, but we've got to think about how do we make sure those other authorities aren't used in ways that we would all find um, beyond what we wanted this program to do. So, so just a quick response to that, Michelle, because I have heard people raise that concern before and I'm aware that's out there. Um, you're referring to a provision of the statute. There's a definition of foreign intelligence information in the statute which requires, provides for a number of different things such as uh, terrorism-related information, clandestine intelligence-related information, uh, information regarding the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. And then there's a provision that says information regarding the foreign affairs or national defense of the United States, but it says with respect to a foreign power or foreign territory. And those are themselves the defined terms in the statute. There are specific definitions of what a foreign power is. It's not a general, this is interesting for foreign affairs. It has to be, this is interesting for foreign affairs and, uh, or, and or the national security of the United States with respect to a foreign power, which are specifically defined terms. So, and just to add quickly to that, the, um, the government produces certifications to the FISA court that list 
um, the sort of topics of foreign intelligence information on which they are allowed to collect within that definition. And the list of foreign powers and, and foreign territories has actually been leaked. Um, that list included most of the countries of the world, including Aruba and, and countries that have that in the Bahamas and, and very and Switzerland and allies. So if you if you plug that into the definition, any information relating to the conduct of the foreign affairs of the United States that pertain to Mexico, for example, that would include a conversation between me and my stepmother who lives in Switzerland and is not a U.S. citizen about Donald Trump building the wall in Mexico, because. It, that relates to the foreign affairs of the United States vis-a-vis -vis Mexico. I'm not saying that that's being intercepted. I'm sure it's not. But why not define the statute in a way that doesn't allow that so that we can just make sure that there aren't problems? I was really hoping the wall wouldn't come up during this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Michelle, did um, the DNI's examples, the five examples, um, did any of them have to do with the Sopranos? No, no, no. So let me ask you a question there. Like, since you know Adam raised The Sopranos, I love that show. I miss it. Um, thank God Game of Thrones is on for another season. I guess the question is like, so if if, if they have a quarter a FISA order um, for a terrorist in, in you know Mogadishu, and he's talking to Tony Soprano's gardener, um, you know, like you know, hey, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm just carrying this big you know package of cash um, out of Tony's um, mulch pile, and I'm going to launder it. He's like, you know, because whatever. Um, he's a, the gardener's a U.S. person. Um, the terrorist isn't. It's incidental collection. What is done with the, the data about small-time, you know, money laundering of the gardener? So there are. Um, I guess that's that's the yeah. concern. I mean, if you're a, if you're, I mean, we're a lot of folks are just like, well, what what happens to the incidental collection um, of U.S. citizens in, in this case? And he's not doing anything terrorist terrorist related. And this, let's presume that. The money laundering is not terrorist related. It's just you know, good time, you know, good fellow stuff. Right. And so the government over the years has said when they are doing terrorism and foreign affairs investigations, you know, there are a lot of uses. Criminal is one of them, right? But they may just want to collect intelligence or maybe they're looking to turn someone into a confidential informant. But there are blended purposes when they actually go looking for someone's information and they may not know how they're going to use it until they actually see what's there, right? And how it's going to be most useful. If you get into the criminal realm, though, the um, Department of Justice, um, actually Stewart, uh, released a memo saying which criminal offenses um, information could be used for. And it includes things like, um, you know, terrorism and uh, things that result in death, kidnapping. Um, but there are some broader terms there that it's not clear to us exactly what they mean. So something like a transnational crime. Um, does that mean anything related to the drug war, right? Because a lot of uh, of that is crossing borders into South America or somewhere else. Um, for cybersecurity, um, again, that's kind of a broad term, right? I don't know if that means credit card fraud or something that's okay. actually pretty, um, I hate to say pedestrian or common these days, but it kind of is, right? Um, and the, the further question is, is if it's even used against someone in one of these cases, are they getting notice? And it is not clear to okay. us when DOJ decides so to actually tell the defendant. Going back to the gardener, who I'm really concerned about, um, you're saying that given all those sections, uh, um, you're saying the gardener could be in trouble. Is that what happens, typically? This, this is a hard question to answer because we don't know when it's actually going into cases. There um, have been some articles that the administration neither confirmed nor denied, but there are tip-offs, for example, like to DEA, and the evidence is then 
reconstructed through a different investigation. And so there's no evidence that it started as a 702 tip-off and that it migrated then into something else. So it's, we can't tell on the so, outside. But if, if, the, if all of a sudden the gardener gets into his uh, El Camino at front of Tony Soprano's house and all the you know, law enforcement converge on him, hasn't the NSA and the government tipped their hand that they're um, actually surveilling the Mogadishu terrorists? So, so Tim, why, why don't I take a stab at answering uh, your question? And, and let me try to break the, because there's a lot of things that are conflated here. So let me first deal with the Tony Soprano and the gardener. And yeah, because I'm worried about the guy. Yeah, right? and, then I'll, and then I'll come back to kind of the, the policies. Um, first, as to Tony Soprano and the gardener, I think that's actually a great example. There are two different scenarios where that could come up. One could be you're surveilling the terrorist in Mogadishu, and all of a sudden you realize he's talking to someone in New Jersey about moving money, and you don't know what that's about. Well, that's obviously very interesting to us. It might turn out at the end of the day that that's just Tony Soprano's gardener and has nothing to do with terrorism. But when we're surveilling the terrorist in Mogadishu and we learn that person is in touch with somebody in America about moving money, that's troubling and alarming. It could come from the other side, too. We're investigating the gardener for possibly being involved in, in organized crime and international money laundering. Well. We don't know if there's a connection to Al-Qaeda or to terrorists abroad. And what the FBI wants to be able to do and what they're allowed to do is to look through the data already lawfully in their possession to see is there anything else within our current holdings that we already have, not to do new surveillance, that sheds any light on whether this person here in New Jersey moving money is connected to international terrorism or not. And so they're allowed to run a query to see, is there anything else in our holdings that suggests there's a terrorism nexus here? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. And if there is, potentially that would factor into to possible future um, criminal investigation of the individual. And, and so there, there, let me shift to what happens at that stage. So, the FISA statute requires, and this isn't just for Section 702, this is for traditional FISA as well. If, <clears throat> excuse me, if the government is going to be using Section 702 obtained or derived information against an aggrieved person, and, and that's a statutory, or statutorily defined term, but it basically means someone who is intercepted on the communication, if they're going to be using that against an aggrieved person in a criminal proceeding, we are required to give that aggrieved person notice, and that person is it then has an opportunity to file a motion with a district court judge in the criminal case to move to suppress the collection as unlawful. That has happened. There have been cases where that's happened, where, where notice has been given and Section 702 has been challenged. And actually, every district court to consider the issue has upheld the legality of Section 702. And in fact, just, just in December, excuse me, of this past year, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals out on the West Coast looked at this in the context of a criminal case and upheld the, lega <coughs> excuse me, the legality of Section 702. So can I talk about the gardener for a second? Yeah. I'm about him too. Oh, good. Um, so I think there's a big difference between, that we need to talk about, between um, happening across information about the gardener um, versus in the course of some other work that you're doing, developing suspicion against the gardener, but you don't have probable cause, you can't get a warrant, but you think, you know, I've got the 702 data sitting in a data bank. Maybe there's something about the gardener in there. And so you plug the gardener's phone number or whatever into the 702 data, which is, which is what we call backdoor searches, US person queries. Things get problematic there because although Stuart is of course correct that foreign targets do not have Fourth Amendment rights, an American does have Fourth Amendment rights in his or her communications with a foreign target. And so, and the FISA court has said that, um, which is why all the courts have conducted a, a Fourth Amendment reasonableness analysis when looking at this. Um, so because the American has Fourth Amendment rights, uh, the government ordinarily, if it wants to read an American's emails or, or look at their phone calls, like the gardener, 
um, they have to get a warrant. And so in order to make Section 702 legal under the Fourth Amendment, the government has to certify to the court up front that it has a foreign intelligence purpose, a significant foreign intelligence purpose for the collection, and that it is only targeting foreigners overseas, that it has no intent to target any particular known American. Its interest is in the foreign. So having certified that as, as the constitutional prerequisite for getting these communications without a warrant, then turn around and go looking for the gardener's emails to read or the phone calls to listen to um, without having gotten a warrant. It's, it's highly problematic. And that practice actually uh, is one that the, that the courts are only just beginning to weigh in on. I think we're going to um, see eventually a circuit split on that pretty soon. Well, I, I, I hear your perspective on that. You know, where the law stands now, every federal judge that's ever looked at it has held that. that for Becker's I uh, no, that's not that's not true. Multiple FISA court judges, who who by the way are regular federal district court judges, have looked at it, and several district court judges have looked at it too. There have been at least two district court judges that I'm aware of. So, but but we we can move on from that for now. Um, I I think the issue here and. Um, and sorry, now that you said that, I, I've forgotten uh, where I was <laughs> going with this. Um, but, uh, well, Tim, why, why don't you just take it back for a second? Well, uh, why, don't, why don't we do this? Um, um, anybody in the audience have any questions? Throw me a lifeline because I'm um, running out of questions. Um, and in the back, if you could stand and um, say your name and ask a question. So I, I can't get into the details of the specific timing because that, that would, of course, um, strain to classified information. What I can do for you is describe the process, which is within the NSA that initiates these requests, it isn't just an individual analyst who makes the determination. So it's not one particular person sitting at their keyboard and they press send and, and immediately data flows. There, there are several layers within inside the NSA themselves where the analyst initiates the process and then people up the chain from them have to approve the request. Once that happens, then the request can go out to the service providers who, who will honor the request or, or potentially not honor the request and send the data back to the, to the government. Um, but but I, I couldn't give you, a, in this setting, a kind of more specific timeline of that. So, so the, the difference of Section 702 is that the certification package itself, the, the documents we talked about earlier, the certification, the targeting procedures, the minimization procedures, those are approved by the Attorney General. And they're approved by the Attorney General once a year and submitted to the FISA court, after which time the FISA court uh, typically has 30 days to evaluate those and approve them. During the course of the, the one-year period that ensues after that, for individual accounts, those don't come to the, the Justice Department for pre-approval. But they are audited afterwards by DOJ to ensure compliance with the statute. Just super quickly, you were right, there are two cases, my, my bad. It's uh, Mutarev in the District of Colorado and the Muhammad District Court, but not the Court of Appeals. Uh, ac actually, uh, in that case, there are three because Judge Gleason in the Eastern District of New York in the Hasbajrami case also addressed the issue, Liza. I'm, I'm reading this is a, the Hasbash Rami case, and I don't have that in there, but anyway. Um, the, anyway, um, let's move on. Uh, you had a question, sir? Yeah, yeah.
Uh, I'm, I'm actually not sure I understand the question. If one of my panelists does. Do you, do you mean the criminal cases that are brought after the fact, or do you mean when they decide to surveil people, we don't know exactly which purposes and the second one? I don't think that has been released public. Like the 106,000, like we don't know how many are terrorists, how many are foreign government representatives or things like that, right? That, that, that's right. We've, what we've said publicly is that the authority has been used with respect to terrorism, cyber threats, and the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Of the 100,000 targets that we've been very transparent about disclosing, those we have not broken down further as to what categories they may fall into. What I can say, though, is that there are extensive documentation requirements inside the executive branch before collection can take place, as I described earlier. And those documentation requirements inside the executive branch would require the analyst to document the foreign intelligence purpose for why they're doing the collection. But that, of course, would involve classified information, so, so it hasn't been publicly disclosed. And I think that's actually one of the most important questions that the members of Congress should be asking, um, especially if they're going to some of these classified briefings, and they usually start for the members at large outside of, you know, judicial and intel um, as we get closer, but um, exactly that question, right? Like, do we have 106,000 terrorists under surveillance? Because that's a very different program than, I don't know, 10,000 terrorists, right? Government officials, people in business within foreign countries that we think have defense or foreign affairs information, and that would... Um, inform how many Americans are caught up in it. I understand that Stuart keeps saying, you know, these folks don't have Fourth Amendment rights overseas. But even if um, the members agree with that interpretation, there's a question about how much further you want to go out from actual terrorists and criminals and people who maybe are involved in foreign affairs but are doing things that are perfectly legal, right? Because that's, that's the more objectionable thing. Is it talking about... Um, I don't know, uh, environmental treaties, right? Because there's a, that's perfectly legal and there could be plenty of Americans and other people who have done nothing wrong swept into that. And so if the members could track that down, I think that'd be really instructive about the real impact of the program. I, I actually just want to jump in because I very much agree with Michelle on, on that point there. Um, while it is, I, I think you can all hopefully understand and appreciate, difficult for us to say a whole lot about the particular uses of the authority in an unclassified setting. We've tried to be very transparent. We fully encourage and we try in classified settings to discuss these issues with members. And I think those are appropriate questions for members to, to be asking and to be getting briefed on in classified settings where we won't be compromising sources and methods. To add to that, if there's one aspect of the uncertainty about who is actually on this list as a terrorist or others. Um, that is uh, that is very problematic, and that's the effect it's happening on that it's having on the U.S. tech sector. Because uh, American companies, when they do business overseas with foreign companies or foreign customers, um, they have to have agreements for how they're going to protect those customers' data. And the European courts um, have begun taking a very skeptical look at uh, the companies' pr the protection they can offer, based on the fact that a lot of this data will become susceptible to. Uh, surveillance by the U.S. government, and so the court, it, the courts in Europe, invalidated one uh, data agreement between U.S. and foreign companies. There was another one that was put in place. That one is in jeopardy as well, and that's why uh, 30 U.S. companies, including Google and Microsoft and Facebook, um, signed a letter uh, to Congress urging Congress to do what what we've been talking about here, which is to narrow the scope 
of surveillance. So it's not just any foreigner overseas, it's actual suspected terrorists. And to uh, beef up back-end protections for innocent people who do get innocently uh, surveilled. And in my opening, I, I said that the, the purpose of this program isn't to take positions on, on these issues. Uh, we were created not to take positions on these issues. And in fact, the, the chairman of the Congressional Internet Caucus um, have different opinions on this issue, too. We have Senator Leahy on the Senate side and, and, and Congressman Goodlatte here on the House side have different uh, perspectives on this particular issue. And we try to get a variety, a diverse set of perspectives on the issue and do the best we can. And there's certainly perspectives on this that are missing from this panel um, because we just don't have enough chairs, frankly. Um, and, and industry is one of them. So um, we uh, we did a briefing on uh, data warrants um, for uh, uh, foreign uh, nations getting warrants for U.S. held data um, last week, and you know we had an industry representative of that. We didn't hear. And one thing I would would mention is that that letter that you just mentioned. Um, there are a lot of points that like four points that the, the companies made because it impacts their business. Uh, one of which was transparency. They would like to produce more for their customers and their trust would like to produce um, transparency reports saying how many requests they've been they've been made of their company. So that was one thing that I think we didn't cover. Um, sir, you had another question. And before that question gets answered, can someone just define what the, the P Club is, the, uh, the Privacy, Civil Liberties, and Oversight Board, and who created it, and who does it report to? The Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board was created um, in 2007, four? So the original version in 2004. Yeah. That's right. The, two, the, the 2004 version was, was created in the White House, and it was determined ultimately that that was insufficiently independent. And so it was taken out of the White House by Congress and made sort of an independent body within the executive branch. It consists of five members who are appointed by the president. No more than three can be from uh, any one political party. Um, and uh, the board has had a fairly tortured history, which is to say that it essentially has sat vacant for most of the time that it has been uh, around And unfortunately, we are at a point right now where it is again sort of in danger of sort of fading into obsolescence because of net, as of now it has just one member, um, which is needless to say not a quorum. Um, and there are a lot of authorities that the statute grants to the board that don't, aren't triggered um, when there's only one member. So it, they're very hamstrung right now in what they or she uh, can do. So, it, and this is really, um, you know, the only independent oversight board within the executive branch that is dedicated to counterterrorism civil liberties. So it serves an incredibly important function. And I think that that I'm really glad you asked the question and it should be a high priority um, for the administration for Congress to get that board staffed up. I have no quarrel with any of that. I just can add an advertisement for the work that the board did do when it was fully populated and staffed up. After the Snowden leaks, the board came out with two reports that were very well received on the telephone call records program that, um, that, that Snowden had leaked, and also on Section 702. And so that's what I was gesticulating with before, this thick document, which looks kind of intimidating. But if you're interested in this program, there's an executive summary. I mean, to my knowledge, this is the most detail about the functioning of a classified intelligence program that has ever been put out in a government report while that program is still operating. And so if you're interested in this, if you have concerns, this is the place to start. Download this document on the internet. It's free, and you'll learn quite a lot. Amy?
so I, I appreciate the question. Uh, I, I think I perhaps may not be the best person to answer it. As you noted, uh, the Director of National Intelligence and ODNI has really taken the lead in, in that area in terms of dealing with the requests for that sort of information. Um, what I can tell you is it's my understanding that from the DNI's interactions uh, with Congress, or ODNI generally, since now it's a, a different DNI than it was last year, uh, over the last year, that the commitment was to look for a methodology that could produce a meaningful and accurate count that could be rele released publicly to help inform this debate, and that an extensive amount of work within ODNI and with it within NSA was done to see if they could come up with a meaningful and accurate uh, count that, that would inform the debate. And at the end, they've concluded that it's just not possible uh, w without an extensive commitment of resources and, 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 quite frankly, an invasion of privacy of Americans beyond what they would normally do. And again, I'm not, I'm not a technologist or a mathematician, but ju just to put a little bit of uh, meat on that, when you're looking at an email, if a foreigner abroad sends an email and there are 10 people on the, the two line or the CC line of that email, typically we're not going to know just from looking at the, the addresses on the two line or the CC line of that email who those people are. You would have to do an extensive amount of research to try to figure out are those Americans, are those not Americans, and, and that's A, privacy intrusive, and, and B, something that, that may not even be technologically feasible. And, and so those are among the challenges that they have here, but, but, but again, uh, this is something where, where ODNI and NSA have, um, have really had the lead for the, the government on. Uh, you were about to make a comment. I mean, just, just for those in the audience who haven't been following this debate, the request from the privacy community and from many members of Congress, it should be said, has been for an overall estimate how many millions of communications out of the pool of stuff that this program is bringing in are communications to or from or about Americans. And that's a very understandable question to ask, right? We're all concerned about the civil liberties effects of programs like this on the privacy of people here in the United States. And so it would be a good thing to know, I think, if we could know it, and I think it's worth continuing to try to find it out. As Stuart points out, when you have a stack of emails, it's not so easy to say, oh, jihadijohn at mail.net, that's a Yemeni, r2345 at mail.net, that's an American. You don't always have that information. So I understand the concerns that the, the intelligence community has with how are we going to put this together. I mean, you don't want the NSA going hunting around for information about people that they normally would never do, looking for collecting intelligence in the U.S. just to conduct this estimate. Now, that said, there are some categories of information where there is, where there is techn technical information that you can use to figure out the nationality of people. And so this privacy board, in one of its recommendations, said there are five categories of information where that, will, where, that we can pretty realistically get that will tell us how, how much this program affects Americans. Uh, so if you download this report, you can look at that. For example, it's the number of telephone calls going into or out of the U.S. that gets intercepted. That's one example. So those are the kind of things that I think we should be starting with. Let's not let the perfect be the, be the enemy of the good. Keep trying to get an overall estimate. It's worth, worth trying to do. But even if we can't ultimately do it, there are other things that we can do in the interim that are worthwhile and worth trying to do. I would have to defer to ODNI on that. Can, can I point out one thing on this issue? Um, so this is a change in administration position. 
until very recently, the administration says, we will come up with a way. We admit it's not going to be exact, right? We're going to have to make a guess, but we'll make an informed guess. We are just trying to decide the methodology that we're going to use. And in the past, they've actually done this once before. They looked at data for the FISA court. There was a very specific program that the FISA court said, I'm worried about how this happens, how many Americans end up in there. So they did a sampling, right? They didn't go through and search, Google search every Gmail account that they have in there to figure out where the person was, but they did a sampling and they told the court their estimate. So there are ways you could estimate it, right? And you'd have caveats and you'd have to share that. But um, until very recently, the administration's position for a couple years was that it was possible. Um, it was not going to be exact, but they were going to just going to pick one of those methods and do it and share it with Congress. So we hope that they change their mind on this point. It's also worth pointing out that when the government conducts upstream collection of internet communications, that means when it uh, takes these communications while they're in transit across the internet backbone, um, the court, the FISA court, has actually required the government, as a Fourth Amendment matter, to try to try to filter out um, wholly domestic communications, communications between two people inside the United States. And the way the government does this is by using the IP address. It's, and this is all in this in this great report. Um, by using the IP address and similar technical means to identify whether the communicants are inside the U.S. or not, and the government considers that to be a sufficient way of doing it for purposes of complying with the constitutional requirement. Um, you know, I know that, that members of this administration have been asked, why, if it's sufficient for that purpose, why is it not sufficient to give us an estimate of how many of these calls are involved U.S. persons? And there's been, there has been, as you said, no satisfactory response. So, you know, just to kind of conclude, I, I think uh, the question we kind of posed was, um, what should Congress do about 702? And we asked it that way because of, it had some good alliteration. Uh, which we really like here. Um, secondly, you know, we thought there were three options available. One was to, you know, reauthorize the statute. One is to, you know, reform during reauthorization. And the last one is kind of just to let it retire to sunset. Does anybody feel like we should, any, I don't think anyone on this panel feels like this provision should be sunsetted. Is that right? Um, I, I would say it is our recommendation if there are no changes substantively to the statute, then yes, you should vote no. Um, that was the recommendation from every privacy group in 2012, um, and there's a significant no vote in both the House and the Senate the last time this was up. And this time you have much more information, and we know that the program is a little bit broader than we were originally led to believe when the statute was first passed um, about a decade ago. I would leave you with this. Um, don't think about it, about whether the program should continue or not. That's not the question. You're Congress. You get to shape the program and write the statute. The question is, what will it look like, right? You can create a program going forward that still allows the government to wiretap foreigners abroad without getting a warrant, but better protects Americans' privacy. So the CDT statement um, was at the front door with some ideas of how to do that. And every recommendation we have would allow the government to wiretap foreigners abroad without getting a warrant. But we have to do something about all of us who get swept up in these programs. So, Stuart, I know, you know, you know the Department of Justice doesn't presume to tell Congress what to do, but um, just, you know, just opine about what Congress should do in this instance. Sure. I, I would actually add a, a kind of fourth option uh, to, to the past you talked about, and, and that would be to reauthorize the statute without an additional sunset provision. The, the statute was originally enacted in 2008 and was given a sunset of the end of 2012. It was publicly debated and reauthorized then. 
Um, since that time, there has been an extensive report, I'll just wave it around again, as Adam has, by the wholly independent uh, Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which endorsed the program as not only vital and useful, but also as lawful. And while the PCLOB did recommend a handful of changes, those were fairly modest changes. Uh, they, they basically endorse the, the overall functioning of the program. And they've acknowledged since that the government has largely adopted all of the changes that they recommended. And so, so given that, we, we certainly believe that a, a reauthorization is appropriate. Um, I don't know what Congress will, will choose, and I certainly wouldn't presume to, to tell Congress. I, I, I would say, um, at least in my view, one of the big, and I've been involved in this going back to, to the early years, one of the biggest changes I've seen is there is now, by and large, a, a across-the-board recognition, as, as the P-Club did, that it is a valuable and vital program to the national security. And so, so I can understand that there may be differing views on, on possible reforms or areas that should be changed. But, but given that, by and large, consensus view, it, it strikes us that uh, letting it sunset isn't a, an actual option for national security. Are we going down the line here? Yeah, why not? OK, yeah. sir. Um, and you can feel free to gesticulate the PCLOB report at any time. Okay. Complete, <laughs> but. So I agree with Stuart that I think the evidence shows, and all of us who are working in the unclassified space on this, we can only go on what public evidence we have, and the best evidence we have is that this is a very valuable tool, especially for counterterrorism, and particularly for homegrown terrorism, frankly, where we've seen a couple important successes. Uh, so it's important to reauthorize the program. I, should also, I also want to note that there have been major reforms since the last time Congress voted on this. So there were the 10 recommendations in the Privacy Board report, which I won't hold up again. Those have been implemented in whole or in part, and those that are in part should, should will hopefully be completed. Uh, there was the USA Freedom Act of 2015, which you all know about, which changed the oversight landscape and, some, and transparency landscape in some productive ways. The FISA court, the secret court with district court judges that we talked about, has forced the government into some important changes. Uh, but that said, we can always do better. We don't want to rest on our laurels. So I think there are a couple things that, that Congress can do to raise the level of oversight and transparency around the program. One is to make sure that when this program goes before the FISA court, that secret court, that there is an expert outside advocate who comes in to argue for additional privacy enhancements. I think that would add more credibility to that judicial oversight. So that's one example. There are some other ways there could be more transparency. Uh, that said, I think given the successes that we've seen in the counterterrorism realm and the current concerns that we have with foreign espionage and, other, and, and cyber threats, uh, it would be unwise to do anything that really gouges out the program's effectiveness. So I would say reauthorize. Don't let it sunset. We can make some changes, but make sure we keep it effective and vibrant. I, I would agree that the program has been useful and effective in going after suspected terrorists overseas, and I think that all the reforms that have been proposed would keep that core intact, that, that suspected terrorists overseas can be surveilled without a warrant, and their communications, including with Americans, could, could be intercepted. So I think the core of 702... Um, it could safely be reauthorized, safely with the, in terms of American civil liberties, if there were some reforms. And those reforms have to do with things other than going after suspected terrorists after seas. So they would include, for example, um, narrowing the scope of surveillance so that uh, it's not just any foreigner overseas. But it has to be somebody who is reasonably believed to pose some kind of threat to the United States. Not necessarily a terrorist, but you know, some, somebody who, who we have re reason to be worried about, rather than just any foreigner overseas. 
and that wouldn't prevent any of the successes that have been, have been publicly reported. The second issue is to close the backdoor search loophole. If the government wants to read an American's communications that, that it obtained without a warrant by pledging that its interest was not in the American, then it should have to go get a warrant before it does that. Um, and then the third one is something we didn't talk about today, which is ending about collection, but I obviously will not get into that since we haven't even uh, talked about it. I will say that the, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board uh, endorsed the program in terms of its utility, in terms of its lawfulness. It said that aspects of the program came very close to the line of constitutional reasonableness, and I would think that Congress can do better and can tighten it a little bit to make sure that it is soundly within the realm of what's constitutional. So, you know, given that, um, just, to, just a reminder, the clock is ticking. Um, 59 day, legislative days for the House, 79 for the Senate to, to get this done. Um, I want to thank um, the panelists for just engaging in this discussion debate. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank the chairman of the Congressional Internet Caucus for hosting this. Thanks so much.